everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Heavenly Father, we come again with bowed heads and humbled hearts and contrite spirits. Thanking you again, Lord, for another day not promised to us. Lord, I'm asking that you forgive us of our sins and our iniquities and our shortcomings and our transgressions. And those things, Lord, that place a veil between you and us. Lord, I'm grateful for this time I have with my brothers and sisters in Christ, that you have kept us in good health, Lord, in perfect peace. And despite, or in spite of what the enemy does, Lord, that you continue to keep us on your path, doing what you have called us to do. Even though the roads will be rough, Lord, we need your guidance. We need your understanding, Lord. We need your joy. We need your strength in order to endure. More importantly, Lord, we need your grace because without it, Lord, there is nothing that we can do. The grace of God, the grace of you, Lord, is one of the greatest gifts that you had ever given us outside of your son, Jesus. And we just thank you, Lord, for being an awesome God. We thank you for meeting our needs. We thank you for giving us those things that we don't deserve, but all because you love us unconditionally. There is nothing that we can do to earn it only but to yield to your spirit. And we love you, Lord, because you love us just because. Teach us to have a heart for you that you have for us, that there'll be no misunderstanding between us. Lord, I'm asking in the name of Jesus that you bind every foul spirit, every demonic spirit, every spirit of error, every spirit of contention, every spirit of confusion, every spirit of heaviness, every spirit of depression, every spirit of uh, lust and fear and Every deceitful spirit, Lord, everything that comes against your body, Lord, let them be placed beneath your cross. Let it be destroyed, Lord, for you had already won the war, but the battle continues for us. And I'm asking that you keep us in your full armor. I'm asking that Christ be fully formed in us, Lord, that we may be able to stand in the evil day. For you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are faithful, just, and true, and worthy of all praises. Lord, I'm asking that you do these things for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so tonight's study is going to be on what is the grace of God. You know, the Lord, I think, led me to this study because without it, we're all damned. And I mean, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on love, which is great because there's nothing like God's love. But when we consider... um, you know, his mercy, which the Bible says endures forever. But one thing that doesn't endure forever is his grace. And I just think we don't give enough emphasis on it or we're not thankful enough for it because we don't really have an understanding. I can't speak for all, but I won't say until I really started studying that I had an understanding of what God's grace is. I mean, it's we're going to try and examine it and really go deep into it. But, you know, he... I can look at times in my life where I've done things and things have happened to me. And man, you know, how many times did I promise the Lord I wouldn't do something only to go back and do it, you know, and and be a hypocrite and to have him wait it out 
you know, the Holy Ghost pricking my conscience, you know, just stirring me up to the point to one day that I'm no longer committing those sins. And it has to be because of his grace, because if he just said, stop it now, that's what the law was all about. The law was all about stopping it now or you know what the consequences are. And the Bible makes clear that the law was perfect. The law was a complete system. There was nothing about the law that could have been changed. There was nothing about the law that was unrighteous. But one of the biggest problems that we couldn't keep it is because it was our nature that was fallen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're going to, um, we just want to thank the Lord for this, That's you know, right. to, to be able to have that grace because Amen. hopefully we'll get some real understanding today and what it's about. I would like to start in John 1 and then uh, from there, uh, I guess Melissa will sing a song um, and Jake will present. Man, you know, are we really fortunate to grow up in the period of grace? That's right. Because, man, we're the only people that survived the law. I mean, the Bible makes clear that the law couldn't be really kept. So, you know, Paul said that he kept it blameless. I'm not sure what that means, but I'm sure that even though Paul kept the law, he probably had thoughts that went against what God wanted, you know, which would still make him a sinner. You know, he persecuted the church of God, but we're getting maybe. ahead of ourselves, so. Yeah. I was going to say, maybe that blameless meant in ignorance. That could be it, too. Possible. Uh, St. John, verse uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. So it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is Jesus Christ. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the and and the life was in light, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and darkness comprehended it not. So you know, one of the interesting things when Jesus came here, you know, he kind of brought things to a forefront. He came to teach people the truth, the the absolute truth, when it comes to what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And, you know, in, in doing so, he put the law and grace on a collision course that to this day people still struggle with, which is why we got a good teaching coming up on the Sabbath on Tuesday. You know, should we keep it or should we not? You know, and, and a bunch of other things. But I think because law was such a system that had uh, merit to it, you know, it was like you, it was based on works. And you have, you have grace that was based on faith that it was no way. Well, I mean, if the Pharisees had opened their hearts, they would have had some understanding as to, you know, what Jesus was trying to do. He said, think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill was to take it to a higher level, you know, to where it would. Um, we'll get there. But the, the point is, is, you know, works based is usually carnal and faith-based because it's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen is totally spiritual. You have to rely on that which you have not seen, but go according to what you have read and believed. All right, so th that's why the darkness couldn't comprehend. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. So the only reason why we present the gospel is in hope that others may believe. Verse 9 or verse 8. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So I always wondered about verse 9 here where it talks about the true light. Because that meant that there must have been other lights shining. Like As we know, Jesus was the tree of life, and then you had the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So even though there might have been some good, and you may get these little sparks and breakthroughs of maybe medical science or psychology and other things that people try and get into to substitute for what God made, you know, that might have been somewhat of a light, or you might have been getting a lot of half-truths, but Jesus came as the light to point everyone back to the truth, everyone back to the Father, to what was originally desired by God the Father. So then it says in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So he made clear here that there were people that would not accept the truth. They would not accept the gospel. And for those little or those faithful few that have, he gave them power. Here is the evidence behind your belief. So the Lord doesn't want us to really step out and blind, you know, um, and when people ask, you know, why do we love the Lord? Or how do you know God is real? The Lord wants to leave us with evidence. He doesn't want us to be out there figuring and wondering and trying to just prove our point with the word. Paul says, I came not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but with the demonstration of the spirit and of power. So the Lord wants his gifts on display. He wants people to know that God is real. God lives in you. All right. So when people don't know or they question, you can't question the miracles. The power gifts, man, just put everything to rest. So verse 13, uh, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but, but but of God. Like I said, to join the church, you can't join the church. This thing is 100% organic. So you have to be born into the church, as in born again. That's why it says it's not the will of the flesh. So there was no sexual intercourse that brought this union. There was no, uh, you know, or born of blood through relation. You know, my father was a Christian, so I'm a Christian. None of that. But it says, but, but, but of God. Okay, so then it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, uh, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So it makes clear here that, you know, along with grace, there must be some truth. So this is why Jesus came. Verse 15, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, this was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is a preferred before me, for he was before me, and um, and of his fullness have all we received the grace for grace. Okay, so we understand that accepting Jesus Christ brings us into this period of what grace is. So then it says, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Okay, so even though, like we said earlier, the Bible makes clear, Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8, that 
the law was perfect and righteous, but one thing the law could not do was deal with man's sin that only the Spirit of God can handle. So we understand the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. So I'm going to leave it right there for now. Melissa, you want to sing maybe? or yeah, Maybe it'll make the baby happy. <laughs> but um, so Melissa's going to sing, then Jake's going to present, and we'll get right back into the study. But the study is, what is the grace of God? It's just like you guys. You got Chris's <laughs> eyes and Cammy's face. <laughs> what blessing lies beyond the stars? Those dazzling hearts too fast to climb. I've got so high to fall so far. But I found heaven as love swept low.
sure one little fan out there looking at him. He didn't take his eyes off of you. <laughs> All right, Jay. You guys have your phones over there because it's a uh, mess with the recording. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right. So. Derek and James already know about this, but the basis of my study comes from, I had a situation with a friend where um, they tried to push their astrology and other things on me. This person tried to get me to engage in tarot readings and things like that. So I didn't partake in it, but I felt funny the whole time. We talked about it. Um, I told you we went to Deuteronomy 18. That's not where I'm going to start, though. I'm going to make a comment. Um, everybody has heard the the uh, scripture, evil communications corrupt good manners. Okay, So that's pretty much saying we need to do the best we can to stay away from the evil. Um, unplug from the world. Do what you need to do. Um, be around people like this that are like-minded to help bring you out of that. Um, but let's start in uh, Revelation 12, verse uh, verse 9 is the key. That's, that's my point in this scripture, but I'm going to start by reading 7. So when everybody's there, let me know. Anybody that has that Bible, the page is 917. Or 1917, I'm sorry. Was it? 1917. Okay, you ready? Excellent. War against the dragon, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, the point I want to bring up is... You, you might hear a lot of people question God, like, why does all this bad stuff happen if God exists or if he's sovereign? Lead him right here. Oh, yeah, Revelation 12.9. It's, it's pretty explanatory. Crystal clear, you know. Um, from there, let's go to... We'll go to 2 Timothy 3. Um, I'm going to dial that up. Yeah, that makes me think of... Uh, there's a scripture that is uh, like a cross-reference to this one about how Jesus said he beheld the serpent uh, be cast out. Luke 10, 19. Yep. And how it was depicted as he was flipped out like lightning. Mm -hmm. And lightning is really fast. You know? mm -hmm. It's just boom. It's mm -hmm. And that's essentially Definitely. how we're supposed to ha um, have that same mindset when a bad thought enters our mind. We're supposed to get rid of it. Cast it out. Makes perfect sense. So, uh, 2 Timothy 3, and I'll start at verse 1, and I'm only going to go 1 through 4. 
but this perilous times shall come this this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves covetous boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful unholy without natural affection truce breakers false accusers incontinent fierce despisers of those that are good traitors heady high-minded lovers of pleasure more than lovers of god okay so that's pretty explanatory what do you see all around you every day just like this exactly yeah. this is society yeah. work sure. wherever mm -hmm. um so i'm going to go from there to and i'm going to keep it short i promise uh let's go to luke 16 Start 16 and 19. Probably my favorite uh, scripture in the book. And Derek knows it really well. So it's called The Rich Man and the Beggar. So I'm going to read all the way down to 31. Is everybody there? Yep. Okay. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared stumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. That's gross. <laughs> and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all of this, between us and you there is a great full gulf, great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us. That would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Meaning, don't allow them to come into this place of torment. Abraham said, saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And then I'm going to end with Deuteronomy 18. And this is the whole point that will sum it up. Um, and then I'll hand it.
have to do it. Deuteronomy 18, um, start at verse 9. Israel to avoid pagan practices, which is what the individual tribe would mean. So, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of these nations. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh the son or his daughter to pass through the fire. Or that uses, where am I? It uses divination. Divination. Or the or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doeth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God, for these nations which thou shalt possess hearken unto observers of time, and unto diviners, di yeah, diviners, but as for thee, thy, the Lord thy God hath not suffered thee to do so. So there you go. Your evil communications corrupt good manners. That's right. Um, and that's what I had. I had a ton of scriptures. Uh... The Lord was just hitting you with him this morning. That's what I was texting you about. So real quick, in your spare time, if you get a chance, uh, read Isaiah 50 and 10. Um, Luke 24. Luke 13 and 9. Um, Isaiah 54 and 17. Matthew 7 and 15. Proverbs 6 through... 19 Matthew 24 Isaiah 20 or excuse me Isaiah 5 and 20 Ecclesiastics 7 through 11 and 8 and then Matthew 7 and 13 and that's all I have totally and that goes right in line with what we did what we're talking about today which Thanks, is um, grace you know if you go back to the story of Luke we're not going there but where they talk about the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was asking for grace beyond grace. And this is why I said grace is a really special time period. We are blessed to be born into it because before Jesus came, there was the law. And I mean, you had to do everything within the law that was righteous. And then came, you know, Jesus. And, you know, it's so funny how the number five, I have a whole list of things I might get to read later, but... The number five is um, God's number for grace. When you look at the five smooth stones that David picked up and, you know, one he struck Goliath with. But Goliath, if he's a type of Antichrist and he's a type of flesh or he's a type of, you know, spirit or world spirit, then it was grace that came to take Goliath out. Okay, when you look at the five books of Moses, the five books of the law, that, that's a symbol for grace. If you go to Genesis chapter 5, all you see is the number 5 all through it, which shows just before when Enoch was taken away, then you go to chapter 6, everything went chaotic, and Noah himself finding grace in the eyes of the Lord.
So we're going to look at the meaning of grace real quick, but there's just so many examples. Uh, there were five covenants before the coming of Jesus Christ. Excuse me. There was um, the Noah covenant after Adam and Eve fell. Then there became the, the Abrahamic covenant. Then the Mosaic covenant. Then the Davidic covenant. And then you had, lastly, Christ who brought grace. Okay, so the number five is always present in the Bible, symbolic for grace. All right, so this is the definition of grace. In order to understand God's grace, we would have to switch it to somewhat another word, which is graciousness or gracious. So uh, here's the definition for graciousness, and it means godly, forgiving, sympathetic, pleasing, acceptable, affectionate, uh, kindness, courtesy, uh, like a gracious host. Then it's graceful. This is B, um, marked by tact and delicacy, characterized by charm, good taste, generosity of spirit, and the tasteful uh, leisure of wealth and good breeding, gracious living, merciful, compassionate, uh, used conventionally of royal and high nobility. So in many cases, you can even say that grace is a time period, but it is a favor. Um, I've heard it said before, and I kind of agree with it, that grace is getting what you don't deserve, where mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Okay, so that's one way to really look at it. But grace is, one, having God's favor. Two, it's a time period that God had given us his favor to get things right. Okay, so from here, I want to go to... Uh, Let's see. Let's go to Galatians 5. I want to go to Galatians 5 real quick. And then we'll go to uh, Matthew 5. Galatians 5. Because we got to understand something about this law. This law... You know, it wasn't wrong, but it's something that we could never do by ourselves. We really needed the help of the Lord right away. And even when you think about how Adam and Eve sinned before the Lord and they were fallen, how they tried to tie fig leaves around themselves to keep themselves covered, and the Lord again intervening and, you know, uh, um, taking two skins from animals and clothing them in. So God's grace has always been present, no matter what. All right, so we'll go to Galatians 5, and we'll start at verse 1, and it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So the law would have been considered a type of bondage because there was just no way to fully do it, void of this, you know, without the Spirit. So then it says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if I be circumcised, or if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. So if we were to go according to, in, in simplest terms, our own righteousness and not going according to what the Lord wants us to do, you you kind of throw a monkey wrench in God's whole program because it was our self-righteousness that got us kicked out overall. Okay, so God doesn't need our help void of his spirit. All we have to do is yield to the spirit of God, and the Lord's spirit will clean us from all unrighteousness. 
So it's not a bunch of do's and don'ts that you should and shouldn't do. It's about yielding to the Spirit of God and having His Spirit wash you clean, okay, by, by taking away the appetite for those things that had us bound in sin. So it says, Christ has become to no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. So you cannot have two. And this is something we're going to really stress with the Sabbath keepers come Tuesday. Because there's nothing you can do to add to your righteousness other than to obey God. Okay, now I'm not saying anyone can't keep the Sabbath. But if you do the law, which the Sabbath began, they try and use the whole point in Genesis 1 that God rested on the seventh day. So that means that that was the Sabbath. He didn't command Adam and Eve to keep it. He didn't command um, Abraham to keep it. Okay, it was it was their right. It was them following the Lord and having relationship with him is when they had it. Now, when did the Sabbath come? When uh, the Mosaic Covenant came into play? Why? They had just come out of Egypt. So it's just like if the Lord was pulling all of us out of the world, okay, the world that we might have lived, we might have been gamblers, fornicators, thieves, liars, you know, whatever, you name it. Now we come and we find the Lord. He comes to us and we get set free. Now the first thing I'm sure you hear from a lot of people when you go to churches is don't do this, blah, blah, blah. But no one got saved that way. If we were ever told not to do something, and then just stopped right then and there. Now, there have been people that would have, but how many people would actually have the time to grow in Christ by just a bunch of do's and don'ts? Okay, the law was when you made a mistake, and depending on what that was, according to what the law says, you were penalized for it. You had no second chance. Everyone knew what the rules were, and that's how you kept the law. But like I try and tell a lot of people in the Muslim faith that are under, you know, they believe in the Sharia law, that... If someone steals, you cut their hand off. You know, they do this and, you know, you do that. But God's law is we may not know why that person had stolen. We may, the person could have been hungry. It could have been anything, okay, that, that caused it. But God gives you the chance to set that right, to let you know why it's wrong to steal and make you feel it inside to where you'll no longer be a thief. But if you just, you know, you do this and I'll cut your hand off, that never stops people from stealing because think about it. Those people knew what the rules were before stealing. They knew that you get your hand cut off, but what drove them to do it anyway? Because their hearts were not right. You know, so this this is why grace is so much better than the law because you're not penalized for making mistakes. The Lord will graciously walk with you to get things right. So what I just read concerning grace is really God's feelings towards all of us. And the reason why I'm bringing that point up is if you don't understand who God is and what his, his intentions are towards us or his feelings, we can misjudge the Lord. And you find this with people all the time. If there was really a God, why did he allow this? Why did this happen? You know, sin has consequences. It's not grace itself that, that penalizes you. It's sin. You know, the wages of sin is death. So it's good to know what the Lord wants. And I'm going to prove this point about misjudging the Lord can really cost us. So let's go to uh, Matthew 25. Oh, 
we'll start at verse 14. Matthew 25 and verse 14. And it says, The kingdom of God is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability and straightway took, the, took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them of five talents. And likewise he had received two, he that received two talents, he also gained um, other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid the Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants come in and reckoned with them. So the Lord said, according to their ability. Now, this is how God would rate us. Some of us may be prophets for the Lord, you know, so he'd have a heavy responsibility on them. You might be an apostle. You might be a pastor, whatever it is. You may just be an evangelist. The Lord is giving them according to their abilities. And that's why he said, well, much, much is given, much is required. But if the Lord had given you special talents that he wants you to do, then, you know, be faithful to it. And no matter what it is, it can be big or small, but we ought to remain faithful to what he calls us to do. Mm -hmm. All right. So where am I? Verse 20. Yes. All right. And so he that receiveth five talents came and brought other five talents saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. No, actually I was up to 18. I think. It was 20, okay. Yeah. All right, so he received five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Uh, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. So this guy made it in for doing the Lord's will, and the Lord told him, Well done. Verse 22. He also that received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Then he that had received one talent, so this guy had the easiest job of all of them. All right, one talent came and said, Lord... I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. So in other words, this guy called Jesus, let's just say this is Jesus, this guy called Jesus hard, and, and reap not where he straws. In other words, he's unfair. He felt what the Lord given him one assignment, which was the easiest of the assignments, that God was wrong because of his fear. Okay, so... We're going to move forward. Um, okay, so verse 25. I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast uh, that is thine. O Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money uh, to the exchangers, and then at at my coming, I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him, which hath ten talents. So this is where we don't want to fall short with the Lord because this guy said, you know, I was afraid, I hid your money. 
But, you know, since I know you're this kind of guy, since you're here, I can just hand it to you. This guy missed out because he misjudged God. He did not have an understanding of the things that God wanted him to do. I think he understood, but he let his fear get the best of him. So because of this, the Lord just took his talent and gave it to someone who was productive. This can be in some ways the Holy Ghost or the anointing upon our lives. The Lord may give us something that he wants us to be faithful with. But when we decide to not want to do it, then the Holy Ghost is not going to waste his time with you and I. He's going to go to someone else who's productive. If we get it together, he may come back and then we can finish the work. But one thing in God's kingdom is he doesn't waste time. And this is why grace is so special, because he's giving us a chance to set things right with him so that he won't judge us. Okay, now, the Bible makes clear when Jesus comes back, there are scriptures saying that he will rule with a rod of iron and he will judge swiftly. Now, remember, we talked about the law being legal, the law accused. You know, you had to do things according to the law or else. Now, you got the grace period in between, but everybody thinks they're ready to see Jesus now. But Jesus' period in the millennial reign, we have to understand, if he's going to rule with a rod of iron, then that means he's going to be strict. He's going to be severe. You know, he's going to correct you. There, there'll be no flying by, and his judgment will be swifter. So a lot of people think the millennial reign is going to be a great time. It will be to see what the Lord does. But he's also going to correct those without error. So after grace, in many ways, you go back to the law. So we want to have this right in the time period that he gives us. Because Jesus is not going to fool around when it comes to his time. Only to prep us for what needs to be. Okay? And he's going to show us for a thousand years what it would have been like had he been here. You know? So that's, that's the purpose behind having grace. Let's go to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. And the more we have understanding of grace, the more grateful you will be concerning the Lord. You know, after going over this, it's like the Lord doesn't have to do anything for me ever again. And I'd be grateful that he spared me from one period, you know, just to prep me for another. All right, so Romans 8 and verse 1, and it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Okay, so... If you look at this, this is talking about how the Spirit itself, or grace, will justify. Being in the Spirit with Christ justifies you, not to continue in sin, but it justifies you as you're getting fixed during the grace period, so you won't be condemned. This is verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. So this is clearly talking about under the Spirit, you know, in the grace period or having a chance to have the spirit, it makes you free from the law of sin and death. You don't have to worry about if a police officer is coming after you. You don't have to worry about other things that might condemn you. You're not doing these things because the law doesn't apply to you. Mm -hmm. If you're keeping the law or, you're, or you are being made righteous by the spirit, how can you be judged by the law? You can't. Okay, so this is what's important to understand that it's through the Spirit of God, not through our effort. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak, 
it doesn't say that the law was not righteous. It says that it was weak through the flesh because, you know, again, one deals with the works and the other deals with faith. So the law couldn't touch faith. The law dealt with the flesh. So if you committed the action, then you were judged according to it. But it did, it did nothing concerning your thoughts. Mm -hmm. How many people know you can be a drunk and not touch a drink, a lick of alcohol? You may stop drinking, but the desire to be drunk will still be there unless the Lord comes in and changes those things. That's where you get the term dry drunk. All right, so then it says, For the Lord could not do that it was weak uh, through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for the sin con I mean, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the Lord might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So we've got to know to get to the Lord. I mean, we have to get the spirit of God. It is the only thing to, to righteous living and living a life in Christ. You cannot become like Christ by watching what he does and attempting to do it. You have to be born of the spirit so that you are linked to God and you will have the nature of God. All right. So if you're trying to do this in your own flesh, it is impossible. Verse five. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. So you find that the fleshly man enjoys the carnal world. You know, he talks about reality TV. He talks about all this stuff that people like to get into, worldly things, where a spiritual man is going to keep his mind focused on Jesus Christ. How may I please you today, Lord? What is it that you desire for me to do? Can I even tell you that God is good, that God is great? Now, to a carnal mind, this seems hard, like, oh, so you're saying we can't have any fun. It's not saying that, but if you know what it is to walk in the Spirit, for the first time in your life, you will be complete as a person in Christ. Okay? we None of us have ever fully walked this out, except for those who, you know, have that, that preceded us. But... If we knew how great it was to walk in the Spirit, we wouldn't even waste time in the flesh. Believe me. All right, so, you know, the spiritual people mind spiritually things. The earthly people, they'll go to football games, paint their faces gold and purple, scream at the top of their lungs in the stands, and that is their life. And if you say anything about their team, they'll beat the heck out of you, okay? But that's because it's so important to them. But a godly person, you know, he's not even that concerned on who becomes president. Yeah. Because if it's not Jesus Christ, and the Bible says that this whole world lies in Satan, lies in wickedness, then you've got no pony in the race if you're a believer and you know this. So you don't really care about that. I mean, you know, you may voice your opinion, but what you're here for is to uplift Jesus Christ, you know, our true king. So in verse 6 it says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So, you know, a carnally minded person, we all know if we were to look at this in a carnal sense, we live and we die. You live, you make the most of what you have, and then you die. Return in the dust, and that's all there is. But a spiritually minded person is alive because after he's led by the Spirit of God to do the will of God, then he comes into eternal life, which he gets to live with God forever. So, excuse my stomach, guys, I'm fasting, but the, the thing is, is that to be spiritually minded is what you want, because where most people die, a Christian cannot be killed. A Christian cannot die. A Christian, the Bible refers to as sleeping. He's asleep. 
because one day he's going to be resurrected. All right. Now, this, this takes a spiritual mind to understand because look at what verse 7 says. Because the carnal mind, which is the worldly mind, is enmity against God. So it is the enemy of God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So there's no way to do what the Lord wants with a carnal mind. We have to be born again of the Spirit to do the things of God, to be, of, you know, to walk with God. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So that makes it very clear there that we cannot please God in the fleshly mindset, living a fleshly life, minding fleshly things. All right, so verse 9 says, But ye are not in the spirit, but it, we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of life because of righteousness. So the body, when it talks about the body being dead because of sin, means that you won't have a desire for sin once the Lord has mortified your members. Like, of course, you'll be alive, but the sin nature won't even be a part of you. You won't even desire those things. So that's what it means to mortify your members so that you may walk with Christ, being full of his spirit. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Man, down, boy. Right, First Timothy chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 1. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, uh, and, Lord, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, mine own son, in the, gra in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I besought thee to abide us still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that teach no other, they teach no other doctrine. Uh, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. So believe it or not, there are doctrines today where people will actually give heed to their genealogy. There's a... Um, Huge deception going on out there where people are led to believe that, you know, I hear some of these guys, they're called the Hebrew Roots Movement. They believe that all the people in the Bible or those who were Israelites were all black and that only black people are going to be saved. And then they try and prove a point that Jesus Christ was black. And you know what? Whether he was black, blue, purple, green, turquoise, whatever, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ is our Savior. He died in our place so that we would not be condemned. Right. But this is what it means by endless genealogies and asking questions. Because let's just say we were to say that black people were the Israelites. They were the people of the Bible. Okay. Now, what would be the next question? Nothing about God. It would be, well, then who are the white people? All right. So who would the Asian people be? All right. So then who's the... See, that's just taking everything off course. The bottom line is we don't know Jesus Christ after the flesh. We know him after the spirit. Mm -hmm. Jesus says that my words are spirit and they are life. And them that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It says nothing about your race. But this is why when you look in society today, 
you got groups of people that are fighting for Black Lives Matter and all this other stuff. A police officer can't even give a description of a criminal, all right, without saying he was black, without being called a racist. I mean, this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But this is what happens when you put a lot of stock in things that have nothing to do with God, and you make those things your God which is a bunch of garbage. I mean, you know, as far as Martin Luther King and all these things that people have done, my focus is in Jesus Christ. It is right. not in my color, okay? Because you're born of the Spirit. You know, this is not your world anyways. Mm -hmm. So it says, uh, verse 5, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. So you see, some people have gone from Believing in the pure faith of loving your neighbor and loving your Lord. They've pushed that aside, and now they're worried about race and different things like that. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor wherefore they affirm. So you got a lot of people that'll tell you. <laughs> if you say you're born again in Jesus Christ, there are some people will tell you, well, you're not really born again if you're not keeping the Sabbath. So the Bible says nothing about a Sabbath. The Bible says to be born again, you've got to be of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. First is your baptism by water, then your baptism by fire, okay, which is being born in the Spirit. That's what is necessary. But people will put big things into who's keeping the law, which really only deals with you feeling like you're, you've done something, except giving it to the Lord so that we may be fixed. All right, so it says in verse 8, But we know that the law is good, if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and for disobedient and for the ungodly and for sinners, for holy and profane and murderers uh, of, of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So this is what the law is for. Now you notice how doctrine has to be sound. Other than that, you're in this class of people that are doing the abominable works. So we have to be sound in order to follow the Lord and understand what he's about. Okay, so from here, I do want to go back to, let's go to Genesis 6. We're just going to give a quick example. We're going to give some examples, and then we're going to talk about what this grace actually gives us in detail. I mean, have you ever just found yourself just doing things throughout the day and the thoughts come upon you to say, you know, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for everything. Only grace can give you a thing like that. Because according to the Lord, there was a time that you didn't know how good God was. And God endured you up until the point to where you got to know him. We're back to the beginning. Genesis 6. We'll start at verse 1. And it says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, again, you know, I don't really want to get into it tonight, but these are talking about the angels of heaven that rebelled against God. When Jake read today that a third of the angels were kicked out with Satan, okay, these angels came down, manipulated man, taught mankind how to do abortion, 
how to deal in drugs, how to deal in witchcraft, how to deal with all this stuff that men became rebellious against God and they made it with earth women, which, you know, produced giants. Now, I know that's a hard story, but you got to look up a lot of things where the Smithsonian hides files and information and things that there were literal giants that walked the earth in those days. That's where you get stories like Jack and the Beanstalk and all these other things. There's no such thing as myth. These things are based on reality. No one's imagination is that great to where they can just decide to write something that never was. This is verse 4. And there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. So these giants would have been like famous men, supermen, heroes, where you hear the name Zeus, you hear the name Apollo, you hear Poseidon, God of the sea, and all these other people. Well, this actually happened, and this is why they're famous unto this day. And you got the pagan people actually worshiping. They named the planets after these individuals, okay? So this is what it means why they became mighty men which were of old. They were men of legend, you know? And this is why they keep bringing up movies like the Avengers and... I ain't got time for that tonight, but this is what they're talking about. And God saw that there was wickedness of man uh, was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, you may take the most vile person today and look at them and say, I don't think anybody just thinks of evil continually. There has to be some good thoughts where they, you know, pick up their children and kiss them or do whatever. And they could be murderers. You know, there's stories of things like this. But it says here that man's heart was evil continually. So he was another kind of creature. I mean, this is like a possessed society. And then it says in verse 6, <laughs> And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. So even God felt like, why did I even make man if man is this defiled and doing what he's doing? Verse 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both men and beasts, and the creeping things, and the fowl of the air. For it repented me that I have made them. Okay, so God wanted to destroy everything and start all over again. But look at verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, and it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. So this doesn't mean that Noah was a perfect man. It says perfect in his generations. The Bible says he was just as in fair, like God could work with him. He's not totally corrupted. But when you go into generations that were not perfect, this would have to go back to the meaning of what giants were, where you get the word in the uh, Hebrew, which means Nephilim. It means fallen ones. Okay, so I believe personally that at that time, man was continuously evil because man had mixed with something other than man. Okay, he was dealing with the fallen angels, and this is why you had this corruption. This is why you hear stories of the minotaur, the head of a bull, the body of a man, and you know, all sorts of things like this were going on. And, you know, when you defile what God made, where he meant for men to be with men, you know, men to be with women, women to be with men, when he means for, you know, everything to go after his own kind, no homosexuality, no bestiality, 
know any of the stuff that you see today, then you defile the things that God intended, you know, he originally intended for things to be. Okay, so it says that Noah was perfect in his generations, meaning that Noah didn't have any mix with the Nephilim seed. He had nothing to do with that which was defiled by the Lord. Okay? Now, I do want to say, because I'm not picking on homosexuals, homosexual sin is no different than any other sin. It's about the same as any man who will go out and cheat on his wife and lay in bed with another woman. Okay? It's not about the person itself. It is the sin itself that is against God. Exactly. No sin is greater than the other. The thing that God meant for what is righteous, and I can easily make the argument for it, is the parts of a man accommodate the parts of a woman. There is no extra whatever you have to add. If you put these two together, they can bring life, which means God created it. When he breathed life into Adam, and Adam had Eve, they had Cain and Abel, and they moved on, it was a natural thing. It fit. You didn't have to have your own pleasures by doing things that you like that in no ways can produce life. Okay, and if everybody were of that homosexual nature, there wouldn't be anybody alive. That's the whole point. It's like we would go extinct if we went according to what that lifestyle was. So I'm not picking on them. We all need salvation. We all need the Lord. But when the God puts something together, it fits. There is no extra going and buying things. And the Lord forgive me, I'm not trying to be vulgar, but there is no, you know, artificial insemination and just trying to you know Caitlyn Jenner he's still Bruce Jenner no matter what he does his chromosomes still identify as Bruce Jenner right. so the same thing that's going on here is what, what's going on now in terms of defiling man you know these bathrooms being put together what about your little one there what about these little children what about little girls that are going to bathrooms and have grown men dressed as women coming behind them what about their story this stuff is not right, no matter what the law says it is. Okay, so I'm just bringing up that point that God had the right to do what he did as far as the perfect generation. Noah had the Lord's favor. Eight people were saved out of the whole world. There were only eight people, Noah, his sons, and their wives. Okay, and they were able to make it to the other side because Noah had grace with the Lord. Now, of course, Noah did some unrighteous things too later on, you know, or whatever. He wasn't a perfect man. His children did unrighteous things. But do you know, out of Noah, had he not survived, there'd be no Jesus Christ coming into the earth. Unless it would have been through someone else. But Noah, from Noah down through Abraham, down through David, or Moses through David. Well, Moses wasn't really of the bloodline, but he was an Israelite. All the way down to where Jesus Christ can give us grace. All became, all came because God had grace with Noah. He did not throw mankind away, even though man was deserving of it. So this is what grace does. Without this grace, early on, there'd be no you and me. If he were done with Adam and Eve, there would have been no Noah. So we have to worship, we have to, you know, be grateful for this grace that we're given to get things right in Christ. All right, where am I going from here? Any questions, anything anyone wants to add, they can. You know, if not, we will go to... Little man. Let's go to Romans uh, 1.
telling you, I know what rock I crawl from under. I'm grateful that the Lord saved my life. I mean, if I can look back to where I was, man, all he had to do was come down with the gavel. I was guilty. He could have brought anybody in court before you, and, you know, it would have been lined up full of people. Yes, he did it. Yes, Your Honor, I cannot lie. He is the criminal. So this is why if we accept Jesus Christ's grace, it'll just be like, imagine you in a courtroom, and you're there before God the Father, and, you know, the devil, who's the astute attorney, who likes to rat us out, Every he, he talks us into doing things, okay? And this is our thoughts are not independent of God or Satan. The word inspiration means to be breathed upon by a spirit. So everyone is inspired to do something, and those inspirations either, either come from God or from the enemy, okay? But imagine just being in the courtroom and you got the devil there telling the Lord, he's got all your witnesses, everybody you've ever sinned with, everything you've ever done. And I mean, the whole case is against you. You're guilty. And all before God the Father can come down with that gavel, you got Jesus Christ in the back of the courtroom. Hey, wait a minute. You know, I want to say, may I approach the bench, Your Honor, because this man is guilty, but I do remember paying his debt 2,000 years ago. If you were to charge him again for this sin, that would be double jeopardy, okay? And because of who Jesus is with the Father, you he's the advocate that saves your life. He keeps you from doing the rest of your life or eternity in, in torment, in hell. And when God the Father, oh, okay, he's with you, case dismissed. So we'd be crazy to have to have this trial one day, and we don't know Jesus Christ, who's the only one that can set us free. This is what grace is. This is how important it is. Even when we were stupid in our lives, doing dumb things, there he was to save us. All right, Romans 1 and 1, and it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. I declare to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So we have to understand here, this grace, you know, was imparted that we may have obedience in the faith to do God's will. Okay, this is the only reason why we may be obedient with the Lord is if we allow this grace to come unto us. And we have to know, too, that grace calls us. Let's go to Galatians 1. Um, Melissa, what page? 1739 on this one. Galatians 1. Yeah. Yeah, I bought all of y'all the same Bible. <laughs> it was like, Sarah got it first, and I um, looked at it, and I'm like, man, this is a nice Bible. I was going to get James one, but James said, uh-uh, I'm happy with the one I got. You know, that's his grandmother gave him that, so can't argue with that. All right. Galatians 1 and 1, and it says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are unto me, or with me, unto the church of Galatia, 
Grace be with you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, my brother James brought up a great point because I never really paid attention to it too much. I know that Paul gave a lot of praise unto the Lord, you know, um, before he wrote his epistles. But James brought up how often they talked about the words peace and grace as if, you know, this is really something that we ought to take heed to. We should be grateful for all right, so it says in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil world according to the will of God our Father. So this grace and peace is given to us who, um, you know, gave it to us for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. So grace is a deliverer. And then it says in verse 5, to whom the glory, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you um, into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So you see how we read earlier when we talked about that you have to have sound doctrine in order to not be accounted, to be counted amongst the sinners, amongst those that are abominable before the Lord. So he's saying he marvels how these Galatians, they go from the grace in Jesus Christ, which gives them a chance to make their lives right and to be complete unto some other gospel where they were talking about the Galatians had issues where if you don't get circumcised, you can't be accepted in. So you've got to be circumcised and you got to accept Jesus, you know, and he said, wait a minute, you know, the Galatians. And this is why he talks about in chapter three. These foolish Galatians who try to lead people into other things instead of the simplicity that is within Jesus Christ. So these people were bewitched. All right, so it says, um, verse 7, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. A quick example for this, and I'm by no means throwing myself trying to be Paul, but Let's just say the issue that we had to tackle was something like homosexuality or it was, you know, adultery or whatever it is that's going on. Now, there may be people amongst you that are guilty of these sins. But if I decide to try and push back what the Bible is saying to accommodate the people around me instead of through love trying to correct them of their sin that they may know right, then I would be trying to please men instead of God, which would make me unworthy to present the gospel because all Jesus Christ wants for us to do is to be saved. Mm -hmm. He wants us to be made right, to be made whole in him, okay. to do his will. But if we're, you know, accommodating people, I don't want to hurt this person, so I won't say, then you love this more than God. You can't say you love that person knowing what the right. Bible says exactly. about that which is right and that which is wrong. Yeah, it's like the, the woman at the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman, mm -hmm. he was telling her of these issues mm -hmm. that she needed to address. Yeah. It's like if, if he didn't say those things, how can one say that they love them? Exactly. And I'm glad that people came and presented the gospel to me, man. I, you name it, I did it. I was involved in so much stuff. I mean, with the exception of a few things. But I know what kind of de debased person I was. You know, to make an example, I 
aborted, you know, my own child in my life because I was selfish. I was into me. You know, I was a beast. I didn't care about, you know, anyone but me. And thank God that he had mercy on me not to take me in my sin then and save my life to where I will never, ever think about doing a thing like that again and recognizing that it's murder. It's not a form of birth control. Okay, so this is what the Lord can do for you in your life. And this is how his mercy and his grace endures. Verse 11, but if I certi- but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which is preached of me is not after man, but I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversion in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. So let's get this, guys, through from uh, Romans on down to, what could we say, Hebrews? Mm-hmm. The, the very guy that wrote this section of the Bible killed the people of God, destroyed the church of God. This guy was a murderer. Mm-hmm. He went after Christians that were following Jesus. But the Lord, through his grace, turned him around, and this guy wrote the rest of the New Testament. So that is the mercy of God to not take people in their sin, even though he could. Verse 14, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of my traditions of my fathers. So these things will actually get you. I've talked to people who were Muslim, and they admitted when we talked that, man, Jesus is totally the way. He's totally the way. Man, that the Quran doesn't even compute to what the Bible is. I've had people tell me this, but you know what they said? I can't go that way because my grandmother, I don't want to acknowledge the fact that I may have a grandmother in hell. I may have a sister in hell. I may have somebody that, you know, didn't believe in Jesus that went. And I don't want to hurt the ones that are living. So there's no way in the world that I'm going to tell them about Jesus, nor will I follow because I don't want to offend and this is what it means to be zealous over the traditions of your families. And we got to understand that it is grace of God that got to you, that you were able to see the truth. Right. Now, if we were really concerned for people's lives and their salvation, why not get built up in Christ and then go and teach them the truth? If you really love them, instead of trying to protect them in their condemnation, where, where, where they're headed, where we were all headed at one point, and where we will head if we don't remain in Christ, Why not tell them the truth in Jesus and say, hey, I once believed this in my life, but I'm believing now that Jesus Christ is the way and show them. And if the Lord is with you, he's going to speak through you and people will get delivered. But we can't just leave people in the way that they were. Grace didn't do it to you. So our grace and you want to know what this guy Paul did. Read the end of Second Corinthians chapter 11, where he was beaten. I think 200 stripes upon his back. This guy for delivering the gospel, was jailed more than he was set free, was robbed and went hungry and fasted in the cold and was about to be killed and escaped through someone else's hands just to deliver the gospel. Because this guy recognized, what's that? He actually, he saw death once at least once. Exactly. And stoned, yeah. Yeah. This guy recognized that the Lord saved my wretched life. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do with the grace that I have 
I'm going to give it all to him. If I was able to do all this work for this false Pharisee religion, I'm going to give it all to Christ at the cost of my own life because I know that I was saved. Hey, little man. So this is what, you know, um, this is what grace is all about, you know, and this is what we have to recognize, 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. So he said the Lord called him by his grace. We got to recognize that we didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. Okay, you can't find Jesus in this corrupt world. You didn't make a choice to follow Jesus. The Lord put the words into someone else to come to you. And if you want to know how slim the gate is, let's go to Matthew 7. But I just want to bring up the point that grace calls. Jesus said that no man can come unto him unless the Father himself draws him. I remember one day, you know, just meeting Cammy when she was working, you know, and we, um, I came in one day, we were just talking, you know, whatever. We started talking about the Lord, you know, and Cammy was receptive to it. But the point that I'm making is, is that, you know, the same way the Lord sent somebody to me, sent someone to all of us, it, it's miraculous intervention and in God's love because he did not want us to suffer what we could without him. Where did I say go? My mind is just <laughs> elsewhere. All right, Matthew 7 and verse 13. I'm in Mark looking for Matthew. Jeez. Close. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think I, I'm uh, related to the, I think it's a, no, it's in John mm -hmm. where uh, when it talks about how Christ, uh, after he rose from the dead the third day, he went back to the disciples and he saw them. Mm -hmm. But none of them recognized him. Mm -hmm. They saw him, but they didn't even know that it was him. That's right. So even even the disciples, he had to tell them who he was again. So it's not that we know him. It's that he reveals himself to us. That's right. Because if we see through flesh and blood, that's a great point. If we see him through flesh and blood, then we're not going to know him after the flesh mm -hmm. anymore. You wouldn't know him. And they were with him for a long time. Exactly. They were with him for that whole time. He taught them. Then after, even after he died, they didn't recognize him. He, he told them that I am That's right. the Son of God. That's right. All right, this is Matthew 7 and verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. So the Bible is saying, and, and you can look at this for yourself. Anytime the word many is used in the Bible, it is always in a negative fashion. It is almost never to say anything positive. The Bible will say, many will do this, but I will do that. Or my people will do this. So if we go by majority rule, that is the surest way to get lost. Because the Bible says that most people will go in through the broad gate. And that's what we're headed for now. Coexisting. No one offends anyone. Everyone loves everyone and what they do. So this gate is getting broader and broader. Now, I did hear that bestiality is now legal in Portland. Something like that I heard in Oregon. In some states it is. So, you're not going to tell that person that being with an animal is wrong? I mean, when does it end? When does it stop? When can we not be, when can we return to normalcy is the question. But see, man isn't like that. If we let man go and go and go, man will become as defiled as he can be outside of God. Because you have, a psychologist will tell you, normal 
is just a little um, a setting on a washing machine or a dryer. They call that normalcy. In other words, nobody's normal. If you want to know what normal is, normal is Jesus Christ. Okay, because we ought to have the nature of a true king and holiness and not be like man who is an animal without God. All right, so it says in verse 14, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. <laughs> so the Bible says that most people will not find the way. Most people will not get it. So do you know what a privileged grace is? Mm -hmm. That out of 7.45 billion people, the Lord got to you. Mm -hmm. This is something that we can't throw away. And it's not that God doesn't talk to other people. He does. But people don't want to hear him. People are, well, that's what you believe. I'm going on with this. But what was it about the word of God when it was presented made you believe? That is miraculous intervention by God the Father, that his grace came unto you that you might see. I mean, th that's terrifying if you think about it. Because you could have easily been someone that never, you know, that didn't want to receive this for whatever was in your heart. But he made it so that it got to you. Not only did it get to you, it remained. Not only did it remain, you wanted to build upon this. You wanted to know him for real. So we can't take this grace for a joke. This is an important time because when Jesus comes, it will be severe. When, you know, before Jesus, it was severe. Now we're in this bubble, this time and space continuum, where we are given a chance to make it right, to be forgiven. As long as we confess our sins before Jesus, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a promise. God holds his word above his name. So let's get another example. There's a lot of um, points in the Bible where it talks about having few is better. Mm -hmm. Like uh, getting rid of your possessions. Mm -hmm. uh, even when he was feeding the 4,000. That's 5, right. 5,000, he had few. He, he had little to feed them with. Mm -hmm. So having little is better versus having more. That's right. And that's why you got people lined up in these mega churches, 5, 10, 50,000 strong. And then they'll look at us and say, that can't be God. Because if that was God, there would be just a whole bunch of everything going on. People don't know in the, in the book of Acts that the apostles, their church was going from house to house. That's what they were doing. That was the church. It was a moving unit. Mm -hmm. It wasn't stationary in a place where you can just hang yeah, out. The church is supposed to be like here. That's right. We are the temple. We are lively stones. So let's get another example. Let's go to uh, Matthew 9 and verse 10. And see, this is why the Pharisees just did not understand what Jesus was doing. Jesus demonstrated grace. He didn't just talk about grace. He showed grace. And this is why he wants us to be forgiving to others, to look out for people, because then do you remember who we were? And every now and then the Holy Ghost will give you a flash of that. When you call yourself being self-righteous, even though the Lord wants you to forget your sin, but there are times when I walked out self-righteous, oh, no, that person shouldn't be, you know, whatever, I'm... You know, he's a sinner, all right? And we're saved. And the Lord just gives you a quick little flash. Yeah, remember when you were in fornication? Remember when you did this? You know, and that humbles you because it brings you back to not only did I fornicate after hearing the truth once, I did it probably a thousand times before grace came unto me and cleaned me. 
So these are things that, you know, we can't get puffed up in pride. We have to have mercy, and we have to use that grace to get to other people. All right, so Matthew 9 and verse 10, and it says, And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eatest your master with publicans and sinners? So you see the self-righteous attitude here? Verse 12, But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what the uh, what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is another problem that we're having with the church. And all of the church wants to preach to save people. Nobody wants to preach to those out there who need it because many of the church feel like they're holier than thou. You better hope that prostitute doesn't take your place at the marriage supper because we are given instruction to preach the gospel and to help people, you know, to, to let them know the truth that they may choose and have a chance. But if we're sitting there walking by people, oh, this guy's on drugs, you're going to see in the future, I guess we won't know who they are, but the Lord will, you're going to find all those defiled people, even people that were homosexuals that were doing their thing in the world, most of them, got, some of them are going to find Jesus by his grace and come to him. And those people that thought they were too good to talk to them, you're going to find yourself out. Okay, so this is why we have to have that grace to present the truth to people that they might be saved. Yes, Sarah? And that's actually, that goes right along with what you read tonight with the rich man and Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Same thing Jake was bringing up. Yeah, exactly, because of that, they didn't want to give up their world for their lives to bring the gospel to others. And like you just said, it's going to be a flip-flop. Mm -hmm. well, you know, once we leave this earth, you know, are we really getting in? Exactly. Well, God's people aren't rich. We're rich in the spirit. That's what he wants us to be. It's not right. And he can bless and give us riches, too, if yeah. we're faithful to his cause. Mm -hmm. But the God is not going to give you millions of dollars so you can continue serving the devil. Because right. most of us would do that. We would say, if I had... Right. They would say, if I had millions of dollars, man, I would feed the homeless and this and that. You watch. If your nature ain't changed, exactly. Or you may feed the homeless and not introduce them to Christ, which still makes you a child of hell. Because you're trying to do it by your own righteousness, void of God. Okay? So you want to be... Good. Wasn't it Solomon that prayed to have wisdom and understanding so yep. he could learn how to mm -hmm. know right from wrong mm -hmm. so that he could teach people and right. lead them the right way right. that was his mindset mm -hmm. and because that was his mindset and that's what he prayed for God mm -hmm. blessed him beyond right. he even asked for it. right the Lord gave him riches because he asked for understanding and wisdom those that see along with wisdom and understanding you would be rich if you followed the Lord because his ways are productive mm -hmm. you know that wouldn't be the goal to get rich but he would add to you because you're doing that which is righteous exactly. let's go to Matthew 5 And I think, like, before um, I met you, because, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in the Baha'i faith, that's what mm -hmm. I, the couple Christians that I met, they're like, oh, you do this, you're going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, like, the stereotype on some of those Christians that, mm -hmm. you know, right. it, it's wrong until I met you, and then I learned more about it. Right. Well, I didn't come to you and start yeah. this and that. You know, we mm -hmm. were having regular conversation, you know. Yeah. 
But still in all, you didn't have to believe what was said. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to. You could have said, well, you know what? You're in, you're offending me right now, and my family's of a high faith, so I don't even want to talk about it. But instead, your heart was open. So it didn't even have anything really to do with me. The Lord sent me to you with a word. You know, so this is the graciousness of God, because think about it. We're not even working out there anymore. You know, you guys could, like, have gone on with your lives. We could have never stayed in touch, you know, and I would have never seen you again. But the Lord just put people in your life at the right time, just when everything starts to come together. So his timing is perfect. Mm -hmm. This little guy is adorable, man. But but, uh, verse... uh, Let's go to verse uh, 13. Matthew 5 and verse 13. He's strong too. (laughs) And it says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? it, It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Okay, so the Bible's making clear, and this is what you're seeing happen to the church now. Because the church would not stand up for Jesus, they did not use this grace to uplift the Lord. Now, you know, salt is a preservative. But if we're not using this to preserve God's word and and his inheritance and everything that he wants for us, then it's no good to be trotted. Now you got the church. The church is the laughing stock of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. The church is a joke. No one takes it serious. No one fears it. Everyone mocks and scoffs and says everything about them. Because the church has lost its savor. I mean, the salt has lost its savor. But the true church of God, which is the remnant that the Lord has reserved, will not be laughed at. Because the Lord intends to do his work through them. So in all these churches, you have a few people that mean business. And those are the people that the Lord wants to deal with. Okay? He wants to deal with everybody, but everybody doesn't want to come. So that's what it's about. And I'm not talking about here. There are groups like this and beyond, far more advanced than us, that believe God for real. And they're doing more for the kingdom than we are. But as long as we know what path we're on and where we should be, that we will not be deceived, then, you know, we are in the body of Christ doing his will. Mm -hmm. Verse 14, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and and put it under a bushel. But on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So, the Lord's not going to light us full of the Holy Ghost to be hid. All right? There are people claiming to be Christian that nobody on the job knows they're a Christian. Nobody even knows you're saved. There's no evidence of you. You engage in the exact same things that they do. You know? Ashamed of the Lord, some people are. But he's saying, if you are the light of the world, then you are to... You know, have that light go through darkness wherever there is a need for people to know Christ and to light up Jesus Christ. You know, put the attention on him. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have come not to destroy, but to fulfill. So the Lord is coming to fulfill the law. Okay, he doesn't necessarily mean Moses' law. He's talking about the law, the liberty of the spirit. But he's also saying, because from here he takes it to a higher level. He takes it to greater extreme about what he desires for us. All right, so then it says, verse 18, 
For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Uh, whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men, so he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees would have been what you would call religious snobs. They're kind of like the people in church that turn up their noses at everybody thinking that they're holier than thou. But they themselves are still in sin, still self-righteous, have no relationship with God. But they have this appearance of just being holy. But everything about them is so unholy. So Jesus actually addresses these people in Matthew 23 when he calls them hypocrites, vipers, dead men's bones. You know, they want to be clean on the outside, but none of the inside has been worked on in that. All right, so it says, so our righteousness has to go beyond that. We cannot be hypocrites. Verse 21, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. Now, most of us will say, even those who haven't committed abortion, they would look at this and say, whew, that was close. I'm not on that list. I don't have to worry about it. But look at verse 22. But I say unto you, so Jesus just took what the old law said, but he's putting himself above the law, acting as king. He says, but I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka, like calling him stupid, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Okay, so you don't have to um, do the act itself. All you've got to do is think this way. All you've got to do is hate someone without a cause. And Jesus says that you are committing murder. That is the same as a murderer. So he's calling for a greater extreme in us. Now, clearly, this is something that we cannot keep void of the Holy Ghost. This is what sanctification is about. Because when you look at this, we all look like we're damned. But Jesus says that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have to believe in Jesus Christ and have the spirit given to us to where not only does he work on our actions, but he works on our minds. You start to think different. It's the same way you did before you came to Jesus. You might have thought some things were right. But as you have found Jesus, you're starting to see things a little bit different. Well, he wants to take it from this point beyond to where you actually become that thing instead of trying to be like it. And it can be done. All things are possible through Christ. Verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to thy altar, and thou rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer the gift. So a lot of people want to go God direct, but the Lord is saying, no. Okay, if you've got something wrong between you and someone else, I'm going to direct you back to them. You make it right with that person. Then you come to me and ask for forgiveness. But don't give me anything until you make it right with that individual. So God is fair. You know, and we can skip down to verse uh, 31. And it says, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. So that's what the law said, the old law. 
This is when Christ comes to rule with a rod of iron, or what he's saying now, verse 32. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whoso shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. So Jesus is saying here that unless it's because of unless it's because of unfaithfulness, unless it's because of because the, the word for fornication is the Greek word pornia, which is pretty much anything in pornography. If you're doing that outside of your marriage and some of that stuff in your marriage, that person has grounds for divorce. Okay? But with the exception of that, you are to be together. There is no such thing as divorce. When God said that the two would become one flesh, that is what he meant, that you two would grow together and become one. So he does not have any belief in divorce unless there is serious unfaithfulness. And even then the Lord will ask, can you reconcile? If it can't be reconciled or things continue, then the Lord will say, okay, you know, if you want a divorce, he'd do it. But the Lord hates divorce. Okay, the Bible makes that clear. There was one other thing I was going to, um, I guess we'll move on, but there's another part where he says, uh, I think it's verse 27, ye have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, he hath committed adultery and hurt with her already in his heart. So the Lord said that he would write his commandments in our hearts and not on stone tablets anymore. The change has to be in our nature, or this is something we could never live up to. Okay, so just because you lust after a woman, you might look at them. You may say, well, I can look but not touch. According to the word of God, you can't look either that way. Right, now you can admire a woman and say, I think she's a beautiful woman, but it has to be clean. You can't, mm, look at the hips, look at this. You, you've already committed the act. So the Lord is calling for us to be holy within and without, not just through action, but in frame of mind. All right, so let's get another example. Let's go to uh, let's see. Let's go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. We want to keep it close. And we'll start at verse 28. But you see, understanding this will make you all the more gracious that God is God. More importantly, that you know him. All right, Matthew 21 and 28, and it says, But what, what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go and went not. Uh, whether, whether of them uh, twain did the, um, did the will of his father. So he's saying, which one of these individuals is doing the will of God? The one that told God he would not work for him and then repented and went to work? Or is it the guy who said, oh, yeah, sure, Lord, I'll work for you, and then not work? He's saying, which one of them is doing the will of God? So it is not how you begin, it's how you finish. Okay, we got to run this race with patience. So then he says, um, where am I, verse 31? Okay, whither of them twain did, um, did the will of his father? They said unto him, meaning Jesus, the first, 
Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of, of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and he believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, uh, when ye had seen it, uh, repented not afterwards, that ye might believe him. So he's comparing these self-righteous religious people to the people of God. Now the people, the people that were sinners that knew that they were in sin said, Lord, save me. They believed Jesus. They wanted a second chance to make it right. Now you got these self-righteous people that think through their own righteousness of keeping the law that they don't need a savior. They don't need any repentance. So he said, you know, these people will make it in before you because they know they understand their need for Jesus. Other than the person, I'm all right. How many times have you guys heard when you talk to someone about Jesus, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. I don't have to believe in Jesus, but I'm a good person. That's not good enough. And if you really let the Holy Ghost live in you and show you what you really are, you'd be surprised at how filthy we are. Okay, so we need the Lord in our lives. Let's go on to John 8. So, you know, even though the Lord may sound like he's angry with these guys and he's telling them that the harlots will go in before them, you know, the Lord is also showing grace there by telling them what they need to hear in hope that they would be bruised enough or hurt in, them, in themselves and say, you know what, he's right. I need to fix it. That's all this Bible is for is correction. You're not judging anyone. You're showing people what is so that, you know, they may have what is right. So it's not going against people. You're trying to help them. So John 8 and verse 1, and it says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives and early in the morning and came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees, see, these guys are always hanging around, brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they um, had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. So, um, you know, I agree with a lot of people that view this, and I'm not taking someone's opinion if you look at this. I believe because the, the scribes and Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus that she was set up. Mm -hmm. I believe that they did probably get her to engage in something. Because yeah. if you notice, they never brought the man. This is a woman that they brought. Well, you can't commit adultery by yourself. So obviously there had to be someone else involved in this. But these guys, they didn't even want to really help the woman. They yeah. wanted to try and corner and bait Jesus. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It seemed like they were tempting him too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like they were tempting him. Like, okay, now you say that, I mean, the law of Moses says this. Now what do you say? Now watch how Jesus handles this situation. What an awesome God. So he says in verse 5, Now Moses in the law commanded us, that should uh, that such should be stoned, but what thou but what sayest thou? So they're saying, okay, back to this law versus grace. The law says if anybody's caught in adultery, they should be stoned. All right, so they're gonna ask Jesus, well, what do you think? Look at what Jesus says. What a oh man. Verse six. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him, see? But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So Jesus was ignoring them or acting like he was ignoring them. And he's just writing on the ground. 
So when they continued asking him, he lifted him lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. So Jesus said, okay, I know how I'm going to handle this. And I believe what he wrote down was the Ten Commandments. I can't prove that. All I know is in Moses' time, when Moses wanted the Ten Commandments, they were written by the finger of God. Remember on Mount Sinai. Well, Jesus is ignoring them, and I believe he wrote down the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not do this and that. So Jesus said, okay, since you guys are on her case, and y'all want this woman who committed adultery stoned, all right, which one of you is not sin? Whoever, whoever is not a sinner here, cast a stone. Just go ahead and do it. Look at verse 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he said, all right, I'm going to answer your question. I'm going to continue writing. Verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, because this is what the Holy Ghost comes to do. He works with our conscience. Went out one by one, beginning at the oldest, eldest, even unto the last, which is the youngest. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So these men thought better of it. Wait a minute. I'm in sin too. I just haven't been caught doing it. So what did they do? Convicted by their sin, they threw down their stones and they walked out. So this is the, the marvelous works of grace because Jesus not only, you know, saved her or protected her from the con condemnation that she was really supposed to have. See, grace doesn't excuse your sin. But one thing he did was show her, you're not the only sinner in town. And if you believe that, you know, cast the first stone if you're righteous. Those men would have had to kill themselves and Jesus would have been the only one standing there who committed no sin. So he made, he gave her self-esteem. He lifted her up and showed her, you're no better than anyone else. We all struggle. But his grace allowed her to do that which was right. All right, so it says, um, okay, the woman was just alone with Jesus now. Verse 10, when Jesus had lifted him up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where art thine accusers? Where are these people that want you stoned? She said, um, have no man condemned thee. Well, Jesus said, have no man condemned thee. She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, some people like to bring up the point that Jesus saved this woman, but everyone wants to leave out the go and sin no more. Now, if Jesus just redeemed this woman, he loves her redemptively, you know, bringing her back. He loved her unconditionally, which is why God loves us without a cause. You know, one of the greatest things you can do is love someone without a cause. I would encourage anybody to do it. That's why he says, love your neighbor. You don't have to know your neighbor. You love him righteously, and you love the Lord. The Lord loves us without a reason. Because if you were to ask the Lord, why do you love them? The Lord would have to say, <laughs> he's probably warm, but the Lord would have to say, God doesn't have a reason for loving us. He loves us just because. Is there anything righteous that we do that he can love us? Think about it. It's unconditional. So if you love someone with conditions, if a husband and wife were to tell each other, well, I love you because of blah, blah, blah. So that means that if those conditions are not being met, then your feelings will change about the person. Mm -hmm. Then you'll start to see them as differently because, well, you're not doing the things you used to do. Ask most people why they get a divorce. 
Well, they used to do this, but they're not doing this anymore. So you love that person with conditions. As long as they were meeting your need, you love them. But when they stopped, you don't love them anymore. So that's not real love, if you really think about this. But God has a right to tell us, because he loves us redemptively, unconditionally, okay, with compassion, he has a right to tell us to not sin anymore. If I'm holding up my deal with you, and I'm telling you what you need to do, you need to hold up your deal, into the deal by obeying me. And he has a right to do so. But everyone wants God's redemption. Everyone wants his love. Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Lord, provide for me. But when it comes down to the Lord telling us what to do, now wait a minute, Lord, you're overstepping your bounds. I should be able to do what I want to do. And I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. If he saves us from sin and sure condemnation and death, then he's got a right to tell us how we should live. You know, let's go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Anyone wants to add anything they can? Okay, you know, he's letting that woman know, go and sin no more. Why? What will happen if she keeps sinning? She'll end up back there again, yep. about to be stoned. Now what? He's going to keep coming and saving her every week? He didn't tell the Pharisees they were lying or she's innocent. He knew that she sinned. But, you know, I believe that he knew the intent behind their hearts, too. But that's what grace can do. Grace gave her a second chance to do what was right, even though her condemnation was sure. All right, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1, and it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, the word for charity is the word agape, which is pretty much unconditional, selfless love. Now, God has this, which he imparts to us. Man does not have this of himself. There are three or four words in the Greek for love. I, can't, I think the last one is strato. I can't remember what that one means exactly. But the word for eros is the word for love, like concerning, um, you know, where you get the word erotic. You might desire that person and lust for them. Right. So, it, But they do consider that in somewhat love. Like you have a deep affection for them, but it's erotic. Then you have the word phileo, which is where you get the word brotherly love, you know, like Philadelphia. So you have the love phileo. That's like, you know, love towards a brother, close friend, family member. And all these things for love are good, but they all have to be governed by agape, which is God's true unconditional love. When a man dates a woman, I heard Pastor Price say this one time, and I agree. He said, I love my wife unconditionally because first, I loved her as phileo, the brother and sister love, you know, like friends. They were out together. They loved one another, and they got to know one another. Then came the marriage where you have that, you know, well, he first loved her unconditionally because they were both under the Lord. That's what I meant to say. Mm -hmm. They were both governed by the Lord. He governed that relationship. And then well, when they learned to love each other unconditionally, then they loved each other like best friends, brother and sister. So then when you got to the eros, which is the love where there is intimacy, man, it's so perfect because first it's unconditionally, then it becomes the brotherly love, that mutual respect, and now you're making love to your best friend that you love unconditionally, governed by the Lord. So this is why you find these relationships that last and why for many of us, including myself, that have been in relationships, having the other two first, what usually happens? You fall out of love. Mm -hmm. Okay, because I thought I liked you until we did this. 
Now I realize it was only the, the arrows that I had for you, but I didn't really love you deep. Okay, so this is why it needs to be governed first unconditionally by God. Then you have the brother and sister thing come, not brother and sister, I hate that sound, but like the brotherly love, you know, loving one another. And then comes the eros, which is safe now because it's governed by God and not of your lust. All right. So he says, um, so that's what it means for charity. Charity means agape. I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have, and though I have all faith, so that I could uh, remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. So he says you can have a bunch of faith, but if it ain't governed by this love, you've got nothing. Love is the strongest force in the world, but I'm not going to say it's a force. Love is the presence of God. Right. Unless you truly know what it is to have God in you, you don't know what love is. Mm -hmm. You may think you love someone, but when you love someone the way that God loves, that agape love, you truly love that person. Because even if that person walked out of your life, you know what? You still want the best for them. You still love them. It just didn't work out, but I don't want anything happen to them. I want them to be happy. That's what agape brings you. But when you got the others... Man, I hope him and his girl goes to you know what or whatever or forget him. I can't stand them. But when you love unconditionally, oh man. Mm -hmm. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, that agape, charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long. So charity, unconditional love, can go through a lot of suffering. And you want to compare marriage to this. You guys can get on each other's nerves. There might have even been a point where you guys have been unfaithful. But if love is governing and the Lord brings it back together, he can heal it. And is kind, so it's not rude. Charity envieth not. So charity doesn't, you know, try and desire things that people have. You're happy for the person. Charity vaunteth not. So charity is not puffed up in pride and is not puffed up does not behave itself unseemly or rudely, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. So, you know, when you, char when you love in charity and in agape, you're gentle. A man's strength is shown by his gentleness. Jesus had a gentle spirit, but Jesus also meant what he said. But anytime a man can get easily offended and flies off the handle and loses it, that's really a sign of weakness. Because in his gentleness, he makes his wife feel safe, he makes his children feel safe. It shows that he has temperance. He can restrain himself, even though he's got the strength to do more. Okay? So a man's strength is in his, his strength is in the Lord, but gentleness is a display of his strength. So it says, um, Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, nor rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, uh, hopeth all things, endures all things. Charity never fails, so the love of God never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. So you see, the only thing that endures is love, but that is the presence of Jesus Christ. And this, if you, everything that we just read is a display of God's love towards you, is why he gives us grace. 
All, everything that's written here is built up in God's grace. God suffers long. You don't think so? In your sin, he endured it. The Bible says God is angry with sin every single day. But in him, his love towards us, I'll let it go. Not that I'm for it, but I want them to come to the truth. I want them to see the truth. So this is a display of God's love, how he endures. He deals with everything just to try and have us with him one day. So we can move on. If anybody wants to add anything, they can. Um, if not, let's go to Matthew 11. I need to know what time it is, too. You never watch a hot dog, too. Nope, not oh, today. Okay. In the room. Uh, we'll know when we hear the rooster crow outside this morning. But, yeah. Right. keep looking for Matthew and Mark. <laughs> maybe, because I keep getting directed back to the same thing. I'm wondering now. All right, so he says, Jesus, this is verse 4. I'll start at verse um, 6. He says, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me, because Jesus tells you the truth for correction. That is his grace. Verse 7. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitude concerning John. So concerning John the Baptist, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? And what? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft raiment or soft clothing are in kings' houses. So Jesus is making clear because John the Baptist, when he came to speak of Jesus... Many would have considered him rude, but John the Baptist had one goal. He wanted people to come to Jesus Christ. So he spoke hard, he spoke firm, but he was letting people know, you don't want to miss out this period of grace. So then it says in verse, uh, where am I? Eight. Okay, thanks. Verse 8. But what went for ye out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft raiment are in king's houses. So he said... If you're looking for a wimp to preach the gospel, or you're looking for someone that you think is dressed nicely and glorious, you know, to make you think, man, this is God. Look at how he smells good and look good. John came out of the wilderness with locusts and wild honey, eating locusts. And, so he was, a, you know, a man away from the world that God could use because he had not been tainted by the world. And it says, um, for oh, where am I? verse 9, and what went for ye out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there have not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. So, you know, Jesus is making, making it known here from the days of John the Baptist since grace began 
that we have to fight our way into the kingdom because Satan is not going to just let you walk in. So the grace period is to get built up in Christ, to be able to stand in those days and to fight your way into the kingdom, not physically, but enduring, you know, dealing with all that you have to, to be right. 13, for all the prophets uh, and the law prophesied until John, and if ye will re receive it, this is um, Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is saying, pay attention. But whereunto like, um, shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the market uh, and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bimber, like it called Jesus a drunk, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. So the Bible makes clear here that John the Baptist came undefiled, and they didn't believe him. Jesus came to have a drink, not because he enjoyed wine, but to, to let the scribes and I mean, let the sinners know, guys, I'm not against you here. I'm trying to let you know that I'm trying to bring you into the kingdom, not because I enjoy wine, but I'm sitting amongst you, letting you know that I'm not, I won't say I'm not above you, but I'm trying to relate to you to get you into the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus indulged in sin. The Bible doesn't speak against having a glass of wine. It speaks against being drunken mm -hmm. or being a drunkard. I wouldn't trust any booze today, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way they, you know, they're so built up. It's yeah. not the wine that they were drinking. All right, so Jesus is just saying that, you know, he did this, and they call him a wine-bibber. So the only person you can live for in your grace is Jesus Christ. You cannot please man. You do one thing, they'll call you self-righteous. You do another thing, now you're a hypocrite. So you have to be able to live for him and not let your surrounding environment dictate how you serve the Lord. You have to know him for self. It's almost seven. All right, yeah, we're going to... Um... But that's why we have to stay middle of the road mm -hmm. because if we go either direction then that way Satan can either use us if we get caught up in religion mm -hmm. or Satan can use us if we're going off the other way getting caught up in the world that's right Matthew 18 Matthew 18 look at how Jesus deals with a brother we'll start at verse 15 Because the Pharisees want to stone everybody, but look at how Jesus deals with the situation. Matthew 18 and 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and let him alone. I mean, between um, thee and him alone. Okay, so this is important because a lot of people will do things in front of people or go to someone else about an issue when they should speak to that person direct. You speak to that person direct, there's a chance you guys can get it straightened out and all will be good. Sometimes you can confront people with an issue in front of other people. And what ends up happening is that person gets embarrassed and starts acting, you know, well, I don't need you to tell me, blah, blah, blah. And why are you embarrassing me? So the Lord said, go to that person directly and deal with the issue. And it says, if he shall hear thee, if he should hear you, thou hast gained thy brother. So all is well. 16. But if he will not hear you or hear thee, 
then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So you go to two other people, if it doesn't work, hey, we want to smooth this over. They're telling you the exact same thing, brother, you're in error. No one's against you. We're just showing you that it's not just me against you. I'm not against you. Okay? And then he says in verse 17, and if they shall neglect to hear them. So you got people that will say, you know, you're just meddling in my business. Then it, then, um, then it unto the church. So now this becomes a church government issue. Okay? Because this person is sinning. You have other people that are saying that you're sinning and you're saying you're not. Okay, then we need to go before the elders of the church, the pastor, whomever, and get this straight. So, you know, this is where the Lord has not given up yet. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So at that point, you've heard the government of the Lord, of those he's put in place. Your brothers tried to correct you and tried to tell you you don't want to hear it. The Bible says leave him to the heathen. So in some ways, you're kicked out of the church unless you repent. Because you choose to willfully want to go your way and not the way that the Lord is telling you to go or God's government. So you despise his government, which makes you almost like a bastard, fatherless, without guidance, unruly, you know, doing your own thing. I'm going to give a couple more examples and I'm going to conclude. But um, let's see, let's go to um, Luke 23 and verse 32. I love this story. Well, see, look at the grace of Jesus Christ when you're in error and the person says, I'm not. Then he says, all right, well, send a brother. That doesn't work. Send two brothers. That doesn't work. All right, well, come before the church. Yeah. But he's not so quick to give up on his people. And aren't we glad? Mm -hmm. I know yeah. I am. I've broken his heart more times than I can count. All right, Luke 23. And we'll start at verse 32. Now, this is when Jesus was on the cross, okay, um, bearing our sin, and he was innocent. So this is uh, Luke 23 and verse 32. And there were also two other male factors, like two criminals, uh, led with him uh, to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which was called Calvary, which is the Greek word uh, cranion, where they get the word the place of the skull. Uh, there they um, crucified him. They crucified him and the male factors. Uh, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Man, nothing but cute babies today. But it says, um, so when these two came, you know, they had one on the right hand and the other on the left. So Jesus was between two criminals. And this is why the Bible says that he was numbered among the transgressors. Because you had Jesus in the middle, you know, innocent. And he was dealing with, you know, I believe it was another display of the sheep and the goats. But uh, look at verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, uh, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. So you had the soldiers took Jesus' clothing, ripped it up, and they were gambling for his um, for his robe. This is how, how cruel the people were while he's up there suffering. James gave me, uh, um, you sent me a leak. I don't remember where it was. You might remember it, but 
It was talking about how severe the crucifixion actually was. That I meant you could not bend your legs, which made you like just struggle all the way through it. It definitely suffocated you. You're not just hanging, you're hanging by your own weight. And with your arms separated, you can't really expand your chest. So you're kind of like this and you're just hanging. Yeah, and you got Yeah, it was it was uh, it was um perfected by the Persians and then the Romans picked it up. The Romans adopted so it. it. Was, it was meant to, no matter how, how long you stood up there, you were meant to die for sure. Right. You weren't going to make it out. And it was a slow death. And I meant like where most people crucified would be tied up to the cross. He had nails in his hands and feet, which symbolized, you know, destroying the old man and giving life to the new. And they put a crown of thorns on his head. Seventy. Well, they the Catholic Church has a 72 thorns. I just believe it was a crown of thorns. The Bible never says how much. But if you understand the occult and you understand that the um, Romans, you know, they got a big thing for this number 72. You know, this is why you'll hear in, um, in Islam 72 virgins. When they die for their thing, they get the 72 virgins. And in the occult, they the know that there are, right, 72 beats per minute is um, in, in most songs that are four, 440 hertz, which actually puts you in a type of hypnotic state. And this is why people start moving to the beat to the music, and you forget who you are, but you're just so into it and absorbing everything the words say. You know, so that's one of the weapons, too. And anybody wants to know more, go to soundoftrumpetministries.com and look up a teaching called The Nature of the Beats. But I mean, in that, we cover a lot of things concerning how music affects the body. And the Nazis even knew this, which is why they made a lot of music, 440 hertz to, you know, disrupt a person's mental capacity. And this is why when you um, play classical music or Christian music or whatever, you have a calming, relaxing feeling about you because it's tuned to 432. Mm -hmm. A lot of the Christian music today, though, is 440 hertz. So, you know, but it's good for you. All right, so anyways, um, uh, where am I? I talk so much, I lost my place. Mm -hmm. All right, so they parted his lots, right. So they took Jesus' stuff and they just, you know, dealt it out. They gambled for it. 35. And the people stood beholding and the rulers also with them uh, derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he be Christ, the chosen of God. So they didn't even understand that Jesus was up there for them suffering so that we wouldn't take that place. This is a display of grace. He died for you because you were worthy of everything he had and more. Okay, so they're making fun of him like, well, if you're really God, save yourself. They don't understand the strength and gentleness and humility and the love and sacrifice. Okay, so this is what Jesus was displaying, his grace. Now, the Bible makes clear he could have called for 10,000 of his saints, of his holy ones, to come and to free him. Jesus didn't have, not 10,000 saints, 12 legions of angels. He could have called to be freed. So don't think that Jesus was up there helpless. I mean, if you read in John, I think it's 19, when they met Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they said, are you Jesus? And he said, or they said they're looking for Jesus, and he said, I am he. The anointing was on him, and all those captors fell back. They all flew back. When he said who he was, the power was displayed like to let people know, make no mistake. Jesus says, I lay down my life. No man can take my life. <laughs> said, no man can take my life, but he lays it down on his own accord. 
That is the grace of God. To do something, have the power to do it with no effort, but won't do it because he loves you and I. All right? Like God's presence? (laughs) All right, so it says, uh, verse 36, uh, And the soldiers also mocked him, uh, coming to him and offering a ven- and offering him vinegar. So he's up there already thirsting, but they offered him vinegar. Now the vinegar was kind of symbolic for Jesus being the sacrificial lamb that took away the sin of the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, verse 37, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And the superscription also was written over him in letters of uh, Greek and Latin, and Hebrew, this is the king of the Jews. So they wrote it in three languages that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but they weren't honoring him. They were mocking him. Like, yeah, see your king? He's up here helpless because we have no king but Caesar, remember? Mm-hmm. Verse 39, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, like made fun of him, saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. So this guy said, if you be Christ, not because I really want you to be Christ so you can help me. If you're really Christ, then use your power to set me free in this life. Okay, let me go free. Not even recognizing his own sin that you are a murderer or a criminal. You deserve to be up there on that cross. Okay? And then it says in verse 40, but the other answering rebuked him saying, dost not thou fear God? seeing thou art in the same condemnation. So the other is recognizing you yourself are dying and you're mocking God. This man called Jesus God. Well, he even called the work that Jesus did an act of God. Like, how can you mock him? In verse 41, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. So this guy is making clear. So everyone wants to point to uh, everyone wants to um, point to the thief on the cross as, oh, this guy, he got saved at the last minute. What about him? Did you hear what the thief on the cross said? Recognizing Jesus Christ could save his life, he was already condemned to die. He never asked to be free. He never excused his own sin. He recognized that Jesus died for his sin or is dying for his sin and said that, right, right. So if he would have been let loose from that cross, this man would have followed Jesus forever. Actually, it was almost as if like he was talking to him in like a brotherly way. Like, do you not see your, Mm -hmm. your faults? Like Mm -hmm. you were accusing Mm -hmm. Christ. He recognized what Jesus Christ was, you know, and that's what made the difference. Mm -hmm. So he said, 42, and he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. So not only did he believe that Jesus Christ was the way, he believed that there was eternal life. And this is what he set for. He didn't say, use your power to free me. He could have cared less about this life. He recognized his need for a savior. And only grace can allow you to do that. Only grace can make you recognize how awesome Jesus is because grace gives you time to be with Jesus, to get to know him. So he says in verse 43, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So the Lord is letting him know, I would imagine he went to Abraham's bosom, like the angels carried him away. This is probably where this man ended up. Or maybe he marched in with the saints when they went. So 
But it's just awesome how the Lord's grace, even though he's suffering for man, endured until the last minute. How can we not want to know a God like this? How can we not want to partake in this grace when we are damned to die? We are condemned to hell. It is sure the, the uh, price has been paid, but if we choose not to, then there is a debt that we could never pay. Mm -hmm. That is what's most important about this whole thing concerning this Jesus. Okay, so I do want to go to another point. Let's go to Ephesians 2 and verse 8. It'll make you really recognize your need for grace. Yep. How awesome grace is. Yeah, a lot of people misquote this, but hopefully we'll get to the bottom of it. This is Ephesians 2 and verse 8. And it says, For we are saved by faith. We are saved through faith. We are, for by grace are ye saved. Through faith, and not and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you got people still struggling for this. All it takes for you is to yield to Jesus Christ. When the gospel is preached to you, it is not meant to be ignored. It is meant to accept the gift, okay? Because you don't know how many times that this gift will come around. All right? This is a gift. This is a price that you could never pay. So you accept the gift. Not through works, not through your righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that will be imparted to you if you accept it. He already paid the bill. Okay, so all you got to do is accept the gift. You're going to tell the Lord, oh, no, man, I got it. I'm all right. You can't pay this debt. All right, so we want to go to another part. Let's go to Titus um, 2, and we'll start at verse 10. Titus is right after Thessalonians. Oh, right after Timothy, right. Well, let's start at verse 6. Titus 2 and verse 6, and it says, Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things, Shewing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine, shewing um, uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, uh, sound speech uh, that cannot be condemned, that he that is um, of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. So this is talking about doing the righteousness of God and being blameless. But we've got to understand, too, that just because you're saved by grace through faith, because a lot of people will do that and stop. You know, you do have works to do, but works are not what saves you. You first accept the grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God will lead you unto good works. But you cannot put the cart before the horse because James 2 says, faith without works is dead. So there are works, but you're saved through grace. So you're not working for your salvation. You're doing good works because God is being grown in you. All right? Verse 9, exhort servants to be... Um, to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not prolonging, but shewing all good fidelity, say like all good faithfulness, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God 
that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So what is grace? You look at verse 12. Grace is also a teacher. It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, uh, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So we can't have the teaching of grace. Not only does grace call you, not only is grace merciful, not only is grace given by God, but grace is a teacher, okay, to lead us to all righteousness. So we don't want to miss out on the teaching. But if we don't accept grace, you know, there's nothing for us but condemnation. All right, let's go to Romans 11 and verse 1. I'll tell you what, I may speak too soon, but these are two good babies. I've never known babies this good. I mean, really. <laughs> oh, I know, it's getting to that point. I'll close early. All right. All right, this is Romans 11 and verse 1, and it's, I mean, 11 and verse 1, yes. I say then, have God cast away his people, God forbid, for I am also, uh, am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, um, oh, what the scripture said of Elias, which is Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the um but what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. So what we understand here is just because we're in small groups going after the truth. Don't you dare think that you are alone. The Lord has reserved 7,000 of his remnant to himself that believe the same as you, that Jesus is Lord, and that they're there to defend the faith. Look at verse 5. Even so then, that this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So another thing that we see with um, grace is that grace is grace elects. Okay, grace chooses just how the Father comes to you. This is what we have, verse 6. And if by grace, then is there no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So you see, you cannot put the cart before the horse. You have to go through the grace, accept the grace, and let the Holy Ghost work on you all by himself. Okay, because a lot of people are turned off from rules and regulations, but it is through grace that we are able to have these things. So as I said, the Lord doesn't have to do anything for me ever again. The fact that he saved my life will tell you that God is good and there's none greater. There is no one more merciful than to give you what you deserve. Now, you know, God can be just. But his grace covers that. Okay, so that's another thing that we want to go to real quick before we close. Let's go to, um, I'll put so many things down. I do this to myself. Let's go to Romans 3 and 19.
Romans 3 and verse 19, and it says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So you see, if you're under the law, then the law applies to you. If you accept the grace, it doesn't apply to you. Verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But just but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So now another thing we find out about grace, grace justifies. It doesn't excuse, it justifies. If you are in Christ, the Lord pays that debt, he cleans us and makes us presentable before him just as if we never sinned. Mm -hmm. So that's how important that this is, that you get a chance to be made whole for the first time in your life. One more situation and we're out of here. I promise, guys, this is John 5 and verse 1. I have other scriptures you guys can read in your spare time. You know, we're saved by grace. Um, 2 Corinthians 12 uh, and verses 1 through 9 talks about that grace is sufficient enough for us. So grace is all we need to get the job done in Christ. We just need his time. We need his, you know, we need his love. And we need to do what he calls us to do. Um, you got Romans 5 and 1 and 17. Grace is the gift of righteousness. So grace gives righteousness. Romans 12, 1 and 6 says grace gives gifts. So you get gifts. You can only have the gifts of the Holy Ghost through grace. If we are judged for every little thing we do that we are not um, allowing the Spirit to change us, then we won't have the gifts. But if we were under the law, we would never receive the gifts because it would be done on your own righteousness. But once the Spirit was imparted, the Lord gives us all these things if we obey Him. All right, last scripture, John 5, and we'll start at verse 1. And it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and uh, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is a, at a Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue uh, Bethsaida, or Bethsda, um, uh, having five porches in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind halt withered waiting for the moving of the water for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole and whatsoever disease he had so let's get this clear that there was a time when there was this pool where um, there was one time a year that an angel would come down into the pool and would heal all sickness. If there was one person that made it in, the first person to make it in would be the person that would be healed of whatever illness or sickness or anything that they had. Mm -hmm. All right. Imagine having to wait for that. All right. Verse five. 
And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had uh, been now a long time, in what case he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? So Jesus is asking him, Would you be made whole? Notice here in John 5, with five words, grace was asked to be given to this man. Wilt thou be made whole? Okay, so that tells you there that there's the grace that the Lord is about to give. And remember I said earlier, grace, the number five is a number for grace. Look at uh, chapter, I mean, verse seven. The impotent man answered him, sir, I have no man. Uh, when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. So this man really couldn't walk, so somebody always beats him in every year. Verse 8, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, and rise, take up thy bed, and walk. What we see next is God's number of completion. In seven words, he says, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Now, I'm not talking numerology here, but we got to understand how words and numbers are significant in the word. So grace, which is five, which is imparted to us to receive of God, all right? And then seven, which is um, God's number in the spirit, which is what makes us whole. So you see, first the five, then the seven. But if you put them together, what do you have? Twelve. Completion, God's number of government, all right? Now, I'm not trying to speak some new age stuff, so I don't want to get any emails on this. I'm just trying to make a point here. Look at verse 9. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. And the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry that bed. Can you believe these arrogant, religious people? Self-centered. The only thing they can find, never mind the man being healed. It is, a, it is unlawful for you to carry a bed on a Sabbath. And this is how people talk to you and me about it. So I can't wait to deal with this on Tuesday night. It can't get here fast enough. Look at verse 10. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured. Oh, I, I read that. 11. He answered them, uh, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. Then asked, then asked they him, what man is that? which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk. And he said, Oh, sorry. He that was healed uh, wist not who it was, for Jesus had uh, conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Because Jesus wasn't there for fortune and fame. These, Jesus was there to do the will of the Father. Mm -hmm. Verse 14, Afterwards Jesus findeth him in, uh, in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. So we got to understand what this grace is. It is not a license to sin. This grace is to get it right with Jesus Christ. Luke 11 tells you that sin itself, well, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But when we partake in sin, he says that seven other spirits, more wicked than, than the one that Jesus had removed from you, can enter you. All right, because the demon comes back with reinforcements. He's not going to get kicked out again, at least not so easily. So this is why we have to obey the Lord and accept his grace. Because it's not grace that punishes you, it is sin. Sin has its own wages. So 
you know, that's one thing we just have to understand about grace. God loves us unconditionally, redemptively. He's here to restore us from all fallacies that we have dealt with in life. And only he can do it if we let him. We've got to give it all to him so that he can make us whole. So hopefully we covered what the grace of God is today because his grace is um, sufficient. sufficient enough for us and it's everlasting. And I just had to catch myself. You know, when I just think about his goodness, man, it, man, it hits you deep. It really wakes you up that we were, I mean, lost and just out of it. And nobody wanted us. Everybody had given up on us. And the so-called people that loved us, all they were there to do was massage you in your wrongdoing. That's what world love is. World love tells you, you're all right. You know, because I say you're all right. Because you make me feel good. But God's love tells you, you know, come and let us reason together. You know, you're sick and I'm not. You've got all these problems and I'm God all by myself. So he says, though your sins be as scarlet, he can make them white like wool. So we would be foolish to not accept this grace. Because without it, there is no way to get to Jesus and there's no way to get to know him. And there's no way to get to eternal life outside of God's grace. All right, so with that, um, if anyone has any questions or anything they want to add, you know, they're free to ask or add. And if not, I guess we'll go out in the word of prayer. Everybody good? James, you mind praying? All right. Thanks, man. In Jesus' name, the Son of the living God, we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debt, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. O most holy heavenly Father, we pray before thee. We pray to humble ourselves before you and everything that was spoken today that we receive it and accept it with the mind of Christ Jesus, the Son of the living God. Thank you, Most Holy One, for this day that you've gathered us together and that you've allowed us time to gather together to commune with one another and to hear thy holy word. We pray with this word that we do accept it and that it does as, it, as thou hast it for it to do for us. Praying that what we receive today, that we go and we keep and we do, that we do not take for granted of the grace and the mercy and the love that you have given us, but rather everything that was spoken today, that it be absorbed in our hearts and our minds, that we keep you firstly there in our hearts and our minds first, for thou art our first love. In Jesus' name, let there be an understanding with us in Christ Jesus of thy word that was spoken of today. In the name of thy beloved Son, in Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.